0: Hey there! Welcome to Pickled Parables. This podcast is presented by Parable Ministries as a Bible teaching resource. Thank you for joining us. Pickled Parables is a podcast about taking in and living out the Bible. Here we will study, contemplate, and testify to the Bible's incredible teachings and how it leads us to live better lives. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. We hope today's message finds you well.
1: Welcome back, guys. Um, uh, my name is Hunter, and uh, I'm I'm privileged to get to share with you again. Uh, as you know, Jesse has been working his way through the Gospel of John, and one of the things that is evident, uh, as as how rich a text John wrote, and how many connections John is making, is and, and, and how he is using those. To both draw us into the story of his gospel, as as well as the story of Jesus, but also pulling us back to make connections between the God of the Old Testament scriptures and Jesus. And there's a lot. Uh, and, and a lot of times, Jesus comes right out and just like does a lot of the heavy lifting for us um, by explaining these connections outright. Uh, this week... I wanted to do and and I hope that you find it interesting and beneficial uh, but we're going to do somewhat of a concept or a word study uh, as it is going to help us flesh out something Jesus said in one of Jesse's lessons last week so as as Jesse shared at towards the end of John chapter two Jesus says this kind of cryptic thing and Again, this is Jesus at the end of, of towards the end of John chapter 2, after he has cleansed the temple, uh, the Jew says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Um, no, the Jew said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Uh, so it's kind of this like, somewhat cryptic message that Jesus gives these these religious leaders, and then we get an editorial note from John later on about the interpretation of that note. John tells us that that this they, they can destroy this temple and he will rebuild it in three days, that that is referring to Jesus' own body in reference to his death and resurrection. Uh, when Jesus said this, he was talking to a group of religious Jewish leaders, uh, as it says in verse 18 of John chapter 2, And so, of course, when he starts talking about the temple, they are thinking about this place of religious worship and and kind of the cultural hub of their lives. They were interacting with this place all the time. They would go there for most of their feasts and celebrations. Many of them, as we see from the portion in John 2, had begun to do business there. And Jesus was not too thrilled about it. And Jesus, though he is talking about his body, in saying this thing about the temple, is playing to something much larger than just their idea of the temple building. And to capture this fully, we're going to just take a look back at a brief overview of the temple uh, and, and what the temple means and what it stands for in the Bible. And so, to do so, we first have to go back to the Garden of Eden. When God made Adam and Eve, the scene we get is that God set up for them a garden in Eden, it says, in the east, for them to dwell. And this garden, Genesis tells us, is special. Uh, And it, it is special because it is a place where Adam and Eve, humans can dwell together in union and in the presence and in communion with God. And we get this picture when God is walking around in the cool of the day and he comes to address the breach in fidelity. They they were told, hey, don't eat of the fruit. They found the fruit, they ate of the fruit, and then it talks about how God is in the midst of the garden moving around. The garden then is this place where God dwelt and humanity was welcome to dwell with God. It is this good place. It is this place, if you will, where God was with his people. When sin entered the equation, man had to leave the garden, and as a result, the presence of the Lord. Flash forward to shortly after God has delivered the people of Israel and we're not hitting every one of these like presence of God moments in between. Um, there are a number of them, and I would encourage you maybe as a goal, as, as Jesse, uh, uh, looks to re release the stuff from my dusty Bible, I would just take time and maybe just track these, these presence of God, these different movements, um, that happen as, as you read through that with him. Um, but flash forward to shortly after God has delivered the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, there there was no temple. There was no garden. And in the beginning of Exodus, there seems to be this question of, where is God at? And in Exodus, we find pretty quickly that the answer to that question is, God is with his people. God brings His people in the book of Exodus out of captivity and helps them cross the Red Sea, and they're on the other side of the sea, now a newly freed people, and they come to the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses is going up on the mountain where the cloud and the fire are to meet with God. And we have this picture of someone being in the presence of God where God dwells, and after giving the Ten Commandments and confirming the covenant with his people, God commissions Uh, the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 8, he tells Moses, Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. So uh, they... The covenant is confirmed, and and one of the the first things that God says is like, hey, I'm going to give you instructions to make this tent a a tabernacle, a sanctuary, and he wants them to do it so that God can be in their midst. And we get this little picture of what was lost at Eden, God being in in the presence of his people, that God is trying to make a type of it happen here where he dwells in in the presence of the people, in the midst of the people, in the tabernacle, and God is seeking to dwell with his people. And now, for the people to have a physical representation of that dwelling in their midst. And then, at the end of the book of Exodus, they actually do it. They make the tabernacle. It is completed, um, and all of its furnishings, and if you want to read more about those... I'll be honest. That's one of those parts of scripture where sometimes it, it, it gets a little bogged down. Um, but just know that, like all the intricate workings of that tabernacle and the descriptions and stuff, it's all important. They their materials to to record written text and stuff were not uh, as easy to come by as ours were. So if it if it was put into writing like that, it was important. But. The tabernacle is built, and we we read a little about this in Exodus 40, the last chapter of the book. Um, At the very end of the book, it says, Then the cloud, which, remember, this cloud and fire have um, kind of been a physical representation of God's presence to the people as they have come out of the land of slavery. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys." The tabernacle is built, and inside it, the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of the Lord comes to rest within the tabernacle. And then there's this moment where Moses is not able to enter into this, this tabernacle at first. God is in the midst of his people dwelling within the tabernacle, uh, and this system where, where God's presence would, would dwell in the tabernacle, lift up from the tabernacle to signify when it was time to move. And the use of this tent as the presence of God, or the place where God's presence dwells, I should say, was packed up and moved and set up over the course of 440 years. The tabernacle and the ark within it went with the people throughout the years of wandering in the desert, God's presence moving with them. It moved with them across the Jordan into the land during the times of conquest, God's presence going before the people, God dwelling amongst his people. During the conquest, the tabernacle and the ark were at Gilgal, which we read in Joshua four, uh, as the people cross Jordan and set up the memorial stone stones on the far side of of the the Jordan as remembrance. And you know, it, you're moving through this this book, and they're they're conquering these lands, and they're they're entering into the land of promise. And the next time we see the tabernacle mentioned in the book of Joshua, uh, is Joshua eighteen. Where the tabernacle uh, and the ark are brought to Shiloh. Joshua 18, verse 1 tells us Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. What is interesting is that in Jewish tradition and scripture, uh, it indicates that the tabernacle most likely dwelled at Shiloh for the next 369 years. Now, there's disagreement on that, um, but most tradition will say that this is where the tabernacle rested for the next 369 years. And there isn't much about this time. Uh, we, we don't see much mentioned about the tabernacle or the ark, really, um, in Scripture until 1 Samuel chapter 4. Because the people of God, uh, of God Israel, had come to view God's presence as somewhat of a like of a superstition, this good luck charm and and they believed that if if they had this tabernacle and this ark in their midst, then they would win the fight, which you know as as this thing has become a symbol of God's presence amongst them, you can see where they would make the connection. Uh, but they began to view the ark perhaps, rather than the God amongst them as the source of their victory. And so, in 1 Samuel, they drag the ark out to the battle against the Philistines, and they lose. The ark is captured, and for the first time in almost 400 years, the ark and the tabernacle are separated from one another. The ark is carried down to Philistia and then later returned to the people of Israel to dwell in a city called Kiriath-Jarim. The tabernacle, however, the tent of meeting, uh, remains in Shiloh for some time more. Uh, and the next time we see it, it is taken to Nob, uh, or Nov, after Philistines destroyed Shiloh. Then the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, stayed at Nove until Saul destroyed the priests there. And then the next mention that we have of the tabernacle is it is in Gibeon, which is where the tabernacle rested until the times of Solomon. And when we read the Bible, we find that though the tabernacle gets very little play, the the one thing that we quickly realize is that, and and, and I believe this is God's point in, you know, we're tracing this presence of God in the tabernacle pretty closely throughout the, the uh, Torah, and then when we exit the Torah and get into the book of Joshua, Judges, and, and the books of history, we quit hearing about it as often. And I think the point is this, and, and it's so evident, I think, in that how they began to view the tabernacle, is God communicating to his people, I'm still in your midst, even when even when my tent is not. I will go before you, tent or no tent, I will move. God is still at work and moving in the hearts and lives of his people, even when the the tent of meeting, the the physical building that God has chosen to to call his home amongst the people of Israel is is maybe not moving as often. During King David's time, uh, the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, was brought to Jerusalem, and we you can read that in Second Samuel six, and you might hear this, and you go, well, like, why is he doing this weird leapfrog of ark intent and tracking where they are? Because, and the reason is because the movements of these are a small commentary about the division of the people of God, the place of God's presence, and the the things signifying the covenant of God have been separated. And though God is with his people, there was a split in those people, later fully realized and, and fully brought to like a, it, its culmination in the actual splitting of the nation of Israel. But the time of God dwelling in a tent is, in our story, soon to be over. As we said, there was division. Zadok, the priest, was serving as priest out of the original tabernacle built by Moses in Gibeon while another priest, Abiathar, served as priest in Jerusalem, where rested the Ark of the Covenant. This separation existed until the reign of King Solomon. Solomon uh, is known probably most for being the, the wisest man, or he, at best we can say he was a very wise king. Um, but second to this in scripture, he is, he is known for his building of the temple. When his dad, King David, uh, had the thought of building the temple, God essentially told David, "Nay, verily, uh, you can't build it because you've you've your hands have shed too much blood. You killed too many people during your time as king." And so, David uh, does two things. He reunites the ark in the tabernacle. He brings the the ark back to dwell within the tabernacle of God, and. David saves up the resources and hands off those materials to his son to build the, the temple himself. And so Solomon is, is so moved by the contrast of God's home. At this point, a pop-up tent. Remember, uh, they've used this tent system for the last 400 plus years. And, and he sees this, this pre- like what God's house, in contrast to his own mega-palace. And Solomon is moved, and he commissions the building of the first temple. Solomon's temple uh, was then built and was the place where God dwelt. And in response, you got to get that page flip, you know, and that's my opinion. But Solomon's temple, when it was built, and, and was the place where God dwelt. And in response to Solomon's building of the temple, God tells Solomon that if his people seek to be his people, then he will continue to dwell in their midst in the temple he has built. Notice here, it does not say that if they seek to be my people, then I will continue to be their God. Rather, if they seek to be my people, I will choose to continue to build to to dwell in the building that you have constructed. But I will not I will not cease to be their God. It's a, it's a big distinction between those two things. And so we read in First Kings, chapter six, starting in verse eleven. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Notice, God tells Solomon that he will dwell amongst his people if they follow his laws and keep his commandments. He will choose to reside in the building that, that Solomon has constructed. And then, in the book of Chronicles, uh, we, we don't get this scene in Kings, which is interesting, um, but the purpose of the book of Chronicles is a little different than Kings. And so, in the book of Chronicles, we get uh, this image of, of, after Solomon builds the temple, we are told in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, starting in verse 1, As soon as Solomon finished his prayer... This is his prayer uh, over having built the temple. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down, with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The temple was the place where the people of God went to be in the presence of God. Problem was, you know, God made this this agreement. (laughs) Be my people, care about the things that I'm about and I will dwell in your midst. Problem was, though, and the tragic story of the Old Testament is that they didn't care. Or if they did, they they stopped showing it. And as such, the special blessings and much of the protections they had from God were removed. And in 586 B.C., Israel is carted off into captivity to Babylon the temple is destroyed, and as far as a record goes, the ark is not accounted for. Second Kings twenty-five, verse eight gives us this scene: In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people left in the city, and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Zaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. And the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The people of Israel were taken into captivity. To dwell in the land of Babylon, away from the land of promise, with no temple and no tabernacle. And much like in the book of Exodus, where we're seeking to answer the question, where is God at? Where is he dwelling? We learn something interesting in the exile stories. We had a temple. It's gone. It's, It's leveled. But God... Is still in the midst of of his people. If you want to see this, go go read Daniel. So they're in captivity, and then in Ezra and Nehemiah we read about the return of the Israelite people after seventy years, with the culmination and, and it and it comes to its its full realization with the rebuilding of the temple in five hundred and sixteen B.C. Zerubbabel is made governor of the Jewish people who are allowed to return at the outset, and. And upon their return, he commissions and begins to rebuild the temple. This project proves to be both disheartening from outsiders and Jewish people alike. The outsiders are looking in going, this, what are you doing? Stop it. And and the Jewish people who are looking on it, remembering the to- the, the stories, and maybe even having seen the, the, the original temple themselves, are going... This new temple isn't as big as the old one. You'll never get this project done. And and this disheartenment goes on and on. And, and in fact, spirits are so low that there is actual prophecy given in the Bible both to encourage and strengthen the people and to light the fire under them to get this temple built. The prophet Haggai, uh, <laughs> give me a hot minute to go find Haggai, you know, You know where it's at, but it's one of those things where it's like, how often do you turn to Haggai? You know what I'm saying? But the prophet Haggai in Haggai chapter 2 says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. See the parallel? My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. He encourages the people, build this temple, build this house. You can do it. And though this new temple may be smaller than Solomon's, Haggai says that the latter glory of this temple will be greater than the first. And notice that God's presence is not like sitting there waiting, as soon as you're done with the temple, I will come and be in your midst. No, it says in verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. God's spirit, God's presence is already in the midst of his people. And so they finished this smaller temple and it was it was magnificent there there was this expectation that one day they would make it look even better than the temple Solomon had built. And before we make a comment on that I want to note something the Lord says to his people. And that is that, that it, again his spirit is in their midst. God is with his people. Even when the physical temple has been destroyed and needs rebuilt, God says he is going with them. The temple, then, is a symbol for the presence of God in the midst of his people. And they do finish this temple. This, the second temple, would have been the temple standing when Jesus walked the earth. This temple underwent two major renovations, this Seemingly to fulfill some of Haggai's words. First, during the Hasmonean period, during the time of the Maccabees, which, if you, it's essentially the time that takes place in between the Old and New Testaments. But in, during that time, it underwent expansion in which they enlarged the temple, so they made it a little bit bigger, and, and they extended the courtyard, the, the area outside the actual temple building. Later, in the time of Herod, the second temple was refurbished and expanded on again. This work is carried out uh, across decades, and some of it was even being done during the time of Jesus. It was probably in the, in the process of the beautifying, and much of the expansion had already been completed. Herod's work on the temple doubled the size of the temple in the courtyard, essentially. Many of the taxes on the Jews and religious leaders have the interactions they have with Rome due to that connection in the work on the temple. And so it is, this second temple, which is likely, it's like think of it like Temple 2.5, that Jesus would have visited as a kid, would have spent time in, went to Passover to, to offer sacrifice. It is this temple that Jesus in John 2 cleanses. Jesus sets right the disruption of worship through the sale of convenient sacrifice in cleansing his temple. And when challenged, well, what, by what, what authority do you have in doing this stuff? Like, who gave you the right? What sign do you show for us? Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus says, if you destroy this temple, the place where God has come to dwell amongst men, I will raise it up in three days. And the Jewish leaders are thinking, yeah, right, buddy. Like They have been working on this building for over 40 years to renovate it. And ha- you think you can accomplish something like that in a mere three days? No. But as Jesse shared, Jesus is pointing toward his death and resurrection. And John keys us into that in his gospel with his, with his comment. And what's interesting is within the century, the temple that Jesus is standing in front of, it would be destroyed. And it wasn't ever rebuilt. Because the New Covenant... And the God who dwells among men, he wasn't residing in the temple. He was residing amongst men in the person of Jesus Christ. John had already called Jesus the God who tabernacled among men, and here he is, picking up that motif again, as if to say, whatever happens to this building, level it if you want. It's inconsequential to the reality of what God is doing in the midst of his people In the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the presence of God among men. And indeed, God's presence was amongst his people. When Jesus died and was raised, we're told that that he sends the Spirit of God to dwell amongst those who have put their faith in Jesus. God dwelling amongst his people. Indeed, God's presence Doesn't need a building. And it would seem as we look at at Scripture, God never did. Thank y'all. We'll see you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Pickled Parables. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us, subscribe, and share with your friends. If you're interested in more things like this, check out our secondary podcast called My Dusky Bible. To stay up to date with all things parable, follow us on Instagram at parable underscore ministries and visit our website at parableministries.com. Parable is a volunteer organization, and we would deeply appreciate your prayers. Thank you for joining us today. We'll catch you later.